Hello, everyone. It's Mike Stewart for the Tommy Rowe Podcast, and welcome to the Tommy Rowe Podcast here at TommyRowePodcast.com. Uh, we're starting Tommy's book, his audiobook, From Cabbage Town to Tinseltown. The book is available uh, on Amazon.com. You can search that, or here at TommyRowePodcast.com, we have a link to that book. But uh, we want you to enjoy Chapter 1, Part 1, and here's Tommy now. From Cabbage Town to Tinseltown and places in between. Chapter 1, Segment 1. It's not over until it's over. Four years away from performing is a long time. That was the first thing I thought about when I received a phone call in 2011 from my longtime friend and music director, Rick Levy. The ensuing conversation consisted of an offer shamelessly intended to entice me out of my self-imposed retirement. But it was hardly as subtle and innocent as it sounds. I'm sure Rick could sell ice at the North Pole. So in a manner that would have surely impressed Vito Corleone, he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. I have been blessed to have spent more than half a century playing music all over the world. So one would think I had little to nothing left to prove. At least to myself. And in all honesty, you'd be right to have such thoughts. All I knew for sure was I would have an opportunity to present to an audience what I had taken the majority of my lifetime to produce. No, not liver spots. Music, my music. The music that gave me the life I have forever felt blessed to live. I've never been sure what to think or even believe about myself, or for that matter, my public legacy. Even at the height of my popularity throughout the 60s, I never thought of myself as special, let alone a star. I suspect there would be little argument that the concept of celebrity has changed greatly over the years. Today, it seems as if it is little more than media hype or bias, often force-fed to the public, whether they like it or not. At times, it seems as if the celebration is that of money, not talent. In music especially, there is also a question as to where the talent ends and the technology starts. To be completely honest, I'm still not sure what some who are renowned today actually do. Maybe that's exactly the point. Their talent is that of being famous. There seems to be a fine line between fame and infamy. This is very confusing to someone like me. In my case, and in my mind, I'm still just plain older Tommy, a kid from Georgia who happens to love rock and roll music and play the guitar. So why would anyone want to see me in the second decade of the 21st century? Was I merely a relic for someone to hang on the wall like a head of an eight-point deer? So much had changed in what amounted to a fistful of years. For example, autographs, at one time the most cherished of trophies for anyone on a safari within the wilds of fandom, have they been replaced by selfies? That is what the new generation claims. Personally, I'd rather have an autograph. I see myself in the mirror enough already. And records, once the meat and the potatoes for musicians and singers. Well, that's 7 to 12 inches of vinyl has now been replaced by streaming. CDs are so yesterday. 
Yes, the world is hardly the same place I remember from my youth. The last recognizable hit I had sort of staggered up the charts, in a manner of speaking, during the pre-Watergate days of Richard Nixon's first term as President of the United States. I didn't realize it at the time, it was going to be the last trip I made into the top 40. I don't believe it was the fault of the music I've made since then. It was attributed more to the fickle nature of an industry that is forever focused on finding the next great new thing. At least that was the story the insiders were telling. Throughout my career, my train was periodically sidetracked. In a world of 10-year cycles, I was now full behind. After more than a score of top 40 singles, six making the top 10 and two topping the charts, there was more to the story that hastened my being relegated to the level of nostalgia act at the ripe old age of 30. I came to learn a lesson in the fall of 1972 that freedom of speech is only acceptable if your opinion coincides with those who make the rules. As for my change of heart about returning from my four-year hiatus to the stage, there was more to that than just the music as well. Unlike the last few years preceding my time away, I wasn't reboarding a tour bus to be a part of a cavalcade of stars. Such monotonous pageants and parades were what nudged me into the rocking chair of retirement in the first place. This time, it was going to be different. I was no longer even remotely interested in being part of a show. I was going to be the show. Now, that isn't meant to sound arrogant. I was just excited that the fans were coming to spend an evening with my music and me. Not just the familiar and recognizable hits, but all my music. Most I recorded, some I wish I had. Maybe it's difficult to imagine that insecurities are an inherent part of entertainment. No matter how many years your star shines, those feelings never really change. The same uncertainties that keep you fighting your way to the top are the ones that remain once you reach the pinnacle of the industry. In fact, in some ways, it's easier to be starting out in music. You have nothing to lose and nowhere to go but up. Having been there, I can attest to that part personally. However, once you reach the summit, the footing becomes quite tenuous as the piranhas in the river of life are constantly nipping at your toes. You are always no better than your last hit. That is all anyone ever remembers. People today are more and more fixated on the latest rage. Oh, I'm sure there were some who already thought I was the late Tommy Rowe, or perhaps just another old rock and roller on the senior circuit trying to milk my career for all the money I could squeeze out of unsuspecting fans. There are a lot of preconceived notions and misconceptions, and in truth, there are many who do fall into those sorts of categories and traps. I hoped I wasn't one of them. I never wanted to feel like I had to play music. I believe the fans deserve more than that. I play music because I want to. I play music because I have a passion for it. Performing is my way of saying thank you to all of you. Early in my career, Top 40 Pop was a lot like late-night television talk shows. The last thing anyone wanted to do at midnight was to traumatize the audience and make everyone wonder if the world would end before sunrise. As the decade wore on, however, that changed. In an age of protest and politicizing inspired by the events of the day and surreal images created by stimulants and supplements both legal and illegal, the majority of the music from my era was quite different from that of my parents. 
It was also a stark contrast to what helped me rise to prominence. To those who sought something of greater substance or an assortment of substances deemed greater than love, dancing, and walking hand in hand, my records were viewed by some as a good waste of vinyl. But to me, I wasn't out to make a statement. That was never my intention as a songwriter. Bring a smile to someone's heart. That's what rock and roll has always meant to me. I knew the audience would probably know most of the words to my songs as well as I did. But there was so much more to the words than the perceived and oft-times ridiculed verbiage that was deemed juvenile by many snobs in the media. They most assuredly thought the only reason the words were there was because they rhymed and sounded nice when strung together. In their defense, to some degree, they may well have been right. But why is it that music can't simply make people feel good? Isn't that what the concept of entertainment is all about? What I found offensive back then, just as I do today, was the fact that Lost in the Shuffle was so much more music that fell between those pops and scratches of the old 45s and LPs. It was overlooked and ignored because I wasn't part of the outspoken counterculture of the day. And yet, in my own way, I may have epitomized the true definition of outspoken counterculture. I didn't adhere to the lines that were being drawn and forced on the masses by many in the industry. I didn't bow to peer pressure and sacrifice my integrity in an effort to become part of the in-crowd. Isn't that the true definition of counterculture? That is part of my story that I don't think many of you know. If you were to look back at my entire catalog of recordings, you would see a number of albums I produced after those tumultuous days of the late 1960s when I was heralded as the king of bubblegum. Being a king of anything is at times a mixed blessing. However, even during my heyday, I did tell my share of stories with songs like the somewhat autobiographical The Folk Singer. It was actually written by Merle Kilgore, and the Christmas images of It's Now Winter's Day. They too were part of my life's tale. Yet such songs were not given consideration because they didn't seem to enhance the image my record label was trying to create, nor did they fall into the genre that radio stations were willing to accept from me. They weren't part of the recognizable formula that is so much a part of every artist's noose. Creativity is often strangled by expectations. Everyone is warm inside their houses in the snow. The mercury is dropping down. Yes, the press crowned me the king of bubblegum. At first I was annoyed, and for a short time I tried to run from it. But I soon came to my senses and realized it is better to be a king than a court jester. You know, if you think about it, the early Beatles recordings were the blueprints for what came to be known as bubblegum music. When you look at their early videos, their audience was my audience, mostly young girls in their teens. Can someone tell me the difference between the message of I want to hold your hand, please please me, love me do, and oh sweet pea, come on and dance with me? But since they were British, not to mention simply being the Beatles, their music was classified differently. It was considered cool and original. The fact that the Beatles themselves admitted they covered Sheila didn't seem to matter to the press. No 
Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Tommy Rowe Podcast. Uh, Be sure to tell your friends, share us in social media. More importantly, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast uh, in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Um, We want to let uh, all of Tommy's fans know what's going on, and this is a great way to do it. Uh, Visit TommyRowePodcast.com to see links to things uh, that Tommy is offering, like his new album, Uh, Tommy Rowe meets Barefoot Jerry, plus all of the opportunities to get his music in CD Baby and iTunes. And until next time, this is Mike Stewart for Tommy Rowe and TommyRowePodcast.com. Sweet little Sheila, you know.